Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Cambridge Science Festival. Um, tonight's speaker is Director of the Behavioural and Health Research Unit here at the Clinical School at the University of Cambridge, and Director of Studies in Psychological and Behavioural Health Sciences at Christ's College. So please give a very warm welcome to uh, Professor Dame Teresa Marteau, who is going to be making sense of our unhealthy behavior. Thank you very much. And the one thing I want you to know is that there is no one way of making sense of our unhealthy behavior. That's the most important thing to know. But what I hope to do is to give you some insights from behavioral science to try to understand what we can think of as a paradox, which is that while most of us value our health highly, we often behave in ways that undermine that. And I hope in taking you through some of those ideas, I'll also highlight for you some of the ways around that through making sense of our unhealthy behavior. And I propose to do this by addressing four questions. And uh, first of all, to address the question why we persist in engaging in unhealthy behavior. And I'm going to address that question by addressing the second one, uh, by looking at uh, why learning about our risks to change our behavior doesn't change our behavior. And then the second part of the talk, I'll come on to ask the question why governments aren't doing more to help us change our behavior and reflect on whether or not a better understanding, uh, a, another way of making sense of our unhealthy behavior could actually lead to change. I'm going to touch on a number of studies, particularly those conducted in my own research group. And for those of you who are interested in getting copies of any of the papers, they're all open access but if you're having difficulty getting them, then just contact me uh, by email or through Twitter. Our unhealthy behavior, to start with that. Smoking, excessive consumption of alcohol, excessive consumption of food, and what most of you are doing now, excessive consumption of sedentary behavior. These four sets of behaviors explain the majority of premature deaths worldwide. So that's in high, low, and middle-income countries, and contributes significantly to the main causes of these, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. But if we could change these behaviors completely, the prize is huge, uh, potentially preventing 75% of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and around 40% of cancers. And because these behaviors tend to be pattern uh, being more common in those who are poorest, if we were able to change all of them, then we could reduce the gap in life expectancy and years lived in good health between the rich and the poor. So to put this into a UK context, around 17% of the population smokes. Now that's a good news story in that it was around 80% in the 1950s. But the gap between the rich and the poor, if you're poor, then you're twice as likely to smoke as if you're rich. So there's still a gap there, and that's one of the main contributors to
difference in life expectancy between the rich and the poor. Our drinking. Many of you will be aware that the reckless rates of drinking that were going on in this country, uh, peaking in around 2009, have slowly started to come down. But still, around 25% of those con who consume alcohol in this country, and that's about 80% of the population, drink at levels that are deemed harmful or hazardous. Um, it won't be a surprise to many of you to know that the majority of our population is now overweight or obese. And this would be a bigger figure than you usually see, but when measured objectively, i.e. not people self-reporting, um, only 5% of our population are engaging in 150 minutes of vigorous or moderate activity a week, which is what is recommended. Now, changing these behaviours, there, there is no one way, but there are less and more effective ways, and that's where we're going to go next. In addressing the second question, in order to address the first, um, and looking at how we respond to different kinds of risk information. Now, risk information in, in many different forms is central to many attempts to change behavior. And this is just one example of the kinds of information that would be not personalized, but used in mass uh, communications. These kinds of um, presentations of, of threats to, to our health from our behavior can be effective in raising our awareness of how our behavior can damage our health, but actually they're not very effective at changing behavior at the scale that's needed to um, uh, lead to, to the prevention that, that is attainable. So this has led people to wonder, well, maybe if we personalize the risk information, it might have more impact. And there are many different ways of personalizing risk information. Different information can be used. And uh, if you go to the unsubtly named Countdown to Death website, <laughs> then you can just type in a few pieces of information about yourself and learn how much longer you have. Now, there's more than one website and you can shop around. And I'm delighted <laughs> to find that on Death Clock, I bought an extra year. And actually, I didn't even have to pay for it. So. Um, I'm unaware of any attempt to evaluate the impact of this kind of information. Now, you can, if you're in a certain age group, uh, take part in the NHS free health check where you would be given more accurate but less precise information. There's increasing interest now in other uh, uh, information, particularly genetic risk information. And some of you will be aware that you can, uh, in exchange for a saliva sample um, uh, and, and uh, some money, uh, possibly 150 or, or 200 pounds, um, get uh, information on uh, your uh, genotype that uh, can inform you of risk for some of the common chronic diseases that I mentioned earlier. And here's just one website. There are others available. And this one, 23andMe, um, 
as you can see, it's uh, suggesting that uh, if, you, if you take a more active role in managing your health, knowing your genes and how they might impact your health could help you plan for your future. And they give the example here of one test result you might get for looking at your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So you might learn that it's as low as 8% or as high as 52%, and then you can learn what you can do. Well, um, I'll tell you, it's eat a bit less, move a bit more. Um, <laughs> it's a secret. Um, so the question is, does this risk information actually change our behavior? And this was a question that in my research group over a decade ago we were, we were interested in. And we conducted a couple of very big trials uh, where we were uh, giving people, or randomizing people to getting this kind of risk information or not. And we found that it wasn't having any impact on their behavior. We were a bit surprised, so we did what most scientists will do, which is go to the literature and find out what others had found out. Was it just to do with the kinds of studies that we were running? And we found um, 18 different experiments that are being conducted, not for online um, tests, but these were um, tests, uh, uh, studies that were run usually in clinics, um, often with research populations, where people who didn't have a condition uh, were invited to come in and they'd learn about their risks for one of the uh, common chronic conditions such as diabetes or one of the cancers, to learn about their risks and risks that they could reduce by changing their behavior, by stopping smoking, uh, eating less, drinking less, or becoming more physically active. And we pooled those results, and what did we find? From the 18 studies, we found that overall, this didn't seem to be changing people's behavior. Now you may think, well, if we focused on genetic tests, then it may be that it led people to be fatalistic. But we've had no evidence for that. And since we published this study, there have been three other systematic reviews looking at providing genetic, uh, not genetic tests, but other kinds of uh, risk information. And similarly, finding um, a flat line, which is in the main, this kind of information isn't changing our behavior, which is Fascinating. Um, so why isn't this changing our behavior? Always. So I think the clue uh, is in these pictures. So we are sensitive to some kinds of risk information. So if you look on the right-hand side, here we have risk information to which the majority of people, the vast majority, uh, those who will live to reproduce, uh, are sensitive to. So it's about immediate threat uh, that's incompatible with life. And in the main, people do respond to that kind of information. And if you look on the other side, um, the kinds of um, threats that we're interested in, in terms of people's health-related behavior, well, the threat isn't so great. We're talking about a probability of developing possibly diabetes sometime in the future um, that is compatible with life, albeit um, uh, uh, a life in, in less good health. So the perception of threat uh, is, is not high enough. Even when people are motivated to change their behavior, though, environments have a very strong influence on our health, and much stronger than most of us believe or want to believe. 
And so it's that that I'm now going to talk a little bit more about. I mean, another way of uh, understanding in a slightly more technical way this lack of impact of risk information on our behaviour is to look at how our brain uh, regulates our behaviour. So I'm helped very much by um, two Nobel laureates who've written popular books, um, Nudge uh, by Thaler and Sunstein and Danny Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. So can I just have a show of hands for how many of you have either read a good review or even read those books? So that's, that's, that's pretty good saturation. I'd say that that's about 30% of this audience is, is familiar with, with these ideas. So they have become popular. So in essence, what these describe is how our behavior is regulated by two sets of processes that interact. Um, so one, a conscious set uh, of processes, which is hopefully what you're using now. It's slow, it's based on thought, and it allows us to achieve our goals, which in this instance would be coming to a lecture and seeing uh, whether or not you can make more sense of your unhealthy behavior. Now, the key thing about this set of processes However smart you are, it's a limited capacity. And therefore, it regulates a very small amount of our behavior. And so it's complemented by a non-conscious set of processes, which are very fast, automatic, based on our feelings, and generally regulate the routines and habits in our life. And the, that um, regulates a far larger, the vast majority of our behavior. So if we think about risk information, What's that doing? It's targeting the set of processes that have least capacity. And not only that, uh, the capacity that is least involved with the behaviors of interest. Instead, these behaviors are cued much more by our environments. And so it's that that I want to go on to say more about, the environmental cues. Now, these are infinite. Um, so I'm going to narrow this down by talking about uh, just one set of environmental cues that my group are researching. So the cues in our immediate environment that can shape the behaviors that I've been talking about. And these relate to properties of objects or stimuli uh, or their placement. So examples here will be the size uh, of food, and I'll say much more about that in a moment. It can be how objects are uh, presented, the packaging that make us more or less likely to approach them. So a recent example you will have heard of is standardized packaging of tobacco, which is now uh, packaged in um, a color that is uh, close to fecal material, which people don't want to approach. Um, <laughs> Then we've got labeling or information, such as used on, on food products. Um, we've also got the design of our environment. So if you think about uh, the design of this lecture theater, it means that you're all sitting in a particular way. Well, actually, you're sitting, and I'm standing, because that's, that's how it's designed. So without awareness, this is the behavior that's being cued. Um, Similarly, the ambiance uh, in, in our environment, the noise, whether it's uh, a pleasant or an unpleasant noise, affects our behavior, whether we stay and what we consume. 
And as I say, the placement of objects, how close something is, means you're more likely to go for it. Uh, we're, we're very um, uh, uh, miserly in terms of uh, the expenditure of energy, which uh, in some contexts is a very good thing, but uh, probably not in our environments now. And availability, uh, this is an example of a study conducted a few years ago now where they looked at, if you like, reducing the convenience or availability of um, lifts. And so what they did was quite simple. They slowed the speed at which lift doors closed and had to put a notice saying there's nothing wrong with this lift because people kept calling the engineers. And it just took so long that people in the end went to find the stairs. So um, these are just some of the ways in which our behavior can be shaped by our environments. So what I want to do is to uh, give you a flavor for some of the research that behavioral scientists conduct to understand more about which cues we might be uh, trying to target and what kind of effect that can have on the behaviors that we're talking about. So size, um, stuff's got bigger, and um, these are iconic American foods, and as you can see, as the food got bigger, so the people got bigger, okay? Of course, that doesn't imply causality, as everybody knows, as uh, association. Um, in the UK, uh, less uh, possibly, well, these are our iconic products, less dramatic increase, but an increase of around 11% in the size of a slice of white bread over the last 20 years. Um, so relatively subtle change that uh, many might not have noticed. But if you happen to be one of those people who's recently been outed as eating the same type, not exactly the same sandwich every day for your lunch, then over that 20-year period, you would be consuming 7,300 more calories um, a year. And uh, if you were to measure your energy intake in Mars bars, some people do, uh, that's 26 Mars bars over a year without being aware. Plates have got bigger and other tableware. So does this matter? And if so, how much? By how much does this matter? So um, we were keen to bring together the literature to find out um, what effect the size of, and we were interested not just in food, but alcohol and tobacco, what impact different sizes of portions, package or tableware might have on whether people selected or consumed these products. So it's a systematic literature review in terms of, systematic in terms of um, how the search is conducted and in trying to bring together the results. And the first result was we found 72 studies that had experimentally varied uh, the size of either food or tobacco. Um, uh, well, 69 in food, three in tobacco, but we found none in relation to alcohol. So that was our first really interesting finding. How come there's nothing in the public domain uh, at that time, so this was 2015, that had compared uh, the impact on consumption of different sizes of either glasses or wine or beer. Anyway, 
Uh, we'll come on to that in a moment. So the majority of the evidence we have was related to food. And I'm just going to show you one slide, and I know you won't be able to read this. Um, there you are. Uh, this is what's called a forest plot. And it's, it's, it's a way of organizing the, all the evidence from the different studies. And what you'll see is listed down here is the name of each of the studies. And here is a line of no effect. And for each study, what we've got here is the difference between the group that got the larger uh, portion and the group that didn't get the larger portion. So if your mean, your average, is on this side of the line, it means that people are consuming more, okay? And so what you do is you sort of weight all, all the evidence and then you come up with a summary statistic uh, at the very end. So it's a powerful way of looking across all the evidence. And the summary statistic here falls on this side of the line of, of no effect and it's showing us that the larger the portion package or tableware, the more people eat. And this is a reliable finding. Um, and we found that that was regardless of how large people were or their gender. So same effect for men and women. And we tried to translate that into something that was uh, more meaningful. Uh, and these are heroic assumptions that if we made all sizes smaller for every encounter that you have with food throughout the day, so all food and tableware on every occasion, then we could reduce the energy consumed in the UK um, in adults by, it's between 12 and 16%, so the upper end is 16%. So that's 279 calories a day. Uh, we found a slightly smaller effect in children, but still worth going for. We didn't, uh, the study was just asking the question, how much of a difference would it make? Um, so we didn't look at mechanism, but it's, it's thought that the effect may be smaller in children because children are still sensitive to, well, they're more sensitive to biological cues of hunger and satiety, being full up. So there's something about our culture whereby this is lost. We lose this as, as adults. Okay, so this is, this is um, suggesting to us and indeed to um, several governments now around the world that this is worth going for. But about two-thirds of these studies were laboratory-based studies. So more real-world studies are needed where um, one will see whether or not reducing the size uh, actually does have this effect when you've got lots of other competing uh, um, stimuli in the environment. In terms of how uh, size uh, might cue consumption, again, this wasn't something we looked at, but just to quickly touch on this, um, it seems that it will affect how much you take. So um, there's evidence that the larger the pack you have, so this is olive oil, but it's the same in washing powder, you use more if you've got a larger pack, often without awareness. Um, tableware, if it's larger, then you serve more. It's a sheer capacity effect, but it's also uh, a perceptual effect. Um, so this is uh, an illusion uh, from Joseph Delboeuf. He was a 19th century uh, Belgian psychophysicist who first described this. And you see the dark circles. They are the same size, but when there's a larger 
contrasting circles surrounding it, it looks smaller. So you need to imagine that that's a biscuit or soup, and you can imagine what the effect would be. You would feel that you might have had less in this context than that. We also think there's some preliminary evidence, but it's been very little studied, that size will also cue how we eat or drink. So these sort of micro-eating or drinking behaviours. So it looks like with smaller portions in tableware that we might take smaller bites and sips. But this, this needs far more research. Okay, um, those of you who... Uh, a memory. Uh, you'll recall that I said that there were no studies that had looked at alcohol and so several research groups including mine are now working to fill that gap in evidence. Um, and uh, we, one, of, one of our first studies was to look at the size of glassware. So there's a general sense with, with wine glasses that they have been getting bigger. Um, we know that uh, tableware has, that has been studied, but we couldn't find any study of, of uh, wine glass size. So we set about um, in what is uh, an unsystematic patchwork of, of uh, evidence um, that I'm just quickly going to talk you through where this was a student project that grew and grew, and we ended up looking at uh, wine glasses in England over the last 300 years just because we could. Um, so, take that, Americans. <laughs> um, and uh, what, what we were able to see, looking at uh, the Ashmolean uh, Museum in Oxford, it has a fabulous collection of uh, 18th century glasses, um, the Royal uh, Collection, uh, sorry, the, the, no, the, the, um, the Royal Household and glass, glassware that, that's currently in use for each reign. There's a new set of glasses that are produced. So um, one of the great things about using a palace collection is there is no um, dropout, if you like, due to uh, um, uh, a survival of, uh, of the smaller glasses um, because every time there's a chip or a break, um, then... Uh, new, uh, new glass is produced. So we were pretty confident that we weren't looking at some bias in, in survival here. Um, and a glassware manufacturer and uh, a department store just along the road um, from their catalogues. And what you can see is that the size, uh, the capacity, so this looking at capacity, has increased almost sevenfold over the last 300 years. But what we were most surprised about was almost doubling over the last 25 years, from 230 millilitres to 450, for a variety of reasons. So, does it matter? What effect does that have? Um, again, uh, in this uh, fine town, uh, we conducted um, the first study uh, worldwide, uh, looking at the question of what's the impact of wine glass size on consumption. So, it's in the pint shop, highly recommend it. Um, and, uh, in, in the pint shop, as some of you be aware, the common serving size for wine is 175 millilitres uh, or, or else in bottles. But in the bar, it's, it's usually 175 millilitres. And what, what, um, what we did was we looked at the effect of serving those um, sizes 
in, uh, their, their serving sizes in different glasses. So when we started uh, at the wine, um, at the pint shop, they were serving, uh, they, they had glasses like this, so we bought them the same design glasses, um, but slightly smaller and slightly larger. So that's 370 milliliters, 300 milliliter capacity, and 250 milliliter capacity. And uh, we uh, had a study design such that for each two weeks, they alternated the size in which they were serving you uh, uh, their wine. And so for two weeks, all the wine was served in standard size, for two weeks in a larger size, two weeks in a smaller, and back to a standard size, and so on. And we then looked at sales, and what we found was that uh, overall there was an increase in sales of just under 10%, but in the bar area, the wine sales were up by 14% when it was served in the larger glasses. We don't know why that was. We've got a number of hypotheses, and we can come on to that in the discussion. Um, we've since uh, replicated or conducted that study in, I think it's four other bars and restaurants, and found an effect in three, but not in a fourth. This study received um, a lot of uh, press coverage because one thing I've discovered is journalists love stories about alcohol. <laughs> and um, it featured it even in the Wall Street Journal. So uh, they too uh, enjoy uh, writing about their own behavior. And uh, uh, as you can see the headline here, larger wine glasses encourage more drinking study finds. And the um, manager of the pint shop spoke to, to the journalist, and we were interested in, in what he had to say. So uh, he said, as you imagine, <laughs> so thus far, our net effect in terms of reducing alcohol consumption has been to increase uh, the amount of alcohol inside the bodies of uh, the good people of Cambridge. Now, it's not that policymakers are being lax about this, but I think this is a really neat illustration of the asymmetry of evidence that's needed to change cues in our environments. If you're in a commercial setting, you just need one study and think, yeah, hey, that's worth a punt. Um, whereas if you are um, a regulator, and it is possible, uh, we, we've, we've found out that um, for the local licensing arrangements, they could include something on glass size. At the moment, it doesn't. But they need much more than one study to be able to do that. So I now want to shift on to the last part of um, this, this talk. And just really to, to, to summarize a little bit, um, to say that I've, I've talked about just one set of environmental cues. And I often think it's helpful to think about ourselves as um, living in multiple overlapping environments. I've talked about some of the uh, physical cues in our micro environments, but uh, there's, there's the macro environment, the, the built environment, the design of our cities and our towns, our roads that, that affect our behavior. But we also 
uh, are, are living in economic environments, uh, the price of things will also be affecting our behaviour. Increasingly, we're living in digital environments. So some of you uh, are immersed in your digital as well as your physical environment as I'm speaking. We've got social environments, cultural environments. So if you think of that myriad of hues um, that are all operating. So it's a Herculean task. And uh, my group in, in Cambridge are just working at one little, uh, one little piece of this for, for generating the evidence um, in, in one set of, of uh, environments. So imagining that we get to the stage, and I, I think we've got there for, for some of these cues, where there's sufficient evidence that policymakers can act. They have the potential to act. Um, and for most of the cues that I'm talking about in shared environments, it will, it will need um, governments or others with some authority to act because of some of the forces that will go... Uh, against wanting to change these cues. And it's that that I now want to turn to in the last part of this um, lecture, to think about um, why governments might not be doing more to help change our behaviour, um, and then think about uh, how uh, what I've been talking about could be one potential route in. So what can governments do to change our unhealthy behaviour? Um, this is a very simplified um, distillation of a report that was published 10 years ago by the Nuffield Council on Bioethics in which they very helpfully laid out um, some of the things that governments can do. They talked about it in terms of levels of intervention for changing behaviour to improve public health. So if you like, at the bottom of this intervention ladder, they can provide information, some of which I showed you at the beginning. They can provide services. Say some of the services that are available would be stop smoking services or commercial weight loss services. They can change defaults. So thinking about regulations surrounding alcohol, it could be possible to change a default such that uh, all wine is served in 125 milliliter glasses unless you ask for other. Um, Taxation, we know that taxation has been one of the most important factors in shifting, in reducing consumption of tobacco. Uh, we have taxation on alcohol, and as some of you will be aware, we have a sugar levy uh, that's, that's coming in um, in April. Uh, we can also restrict choice. Uh, we can restrict where people engage in behaviours, and that, that's happened uh, with um, restricting where people can smoke cigarettes, or we can eliminate choice altogether. Now, generally, um, people find it much more acceptable for governments to operate down this level. People are terribly happy to be given information if people want to provide it. They may not engage with it, uh, it may not change their behaviour, but they feel that's very acceptable. When you start going up, taxation uh, affecting choice, then people find that far less acceptable. But uh, it's an unfortunate truth uh, that generally the higher up you go, uh, these tend to be the more effective interventions. And one of the questions we're now interested in is if people understood more about the effectiveness of some of these interventions, would that shift how acceptable they found them? 
And we looked at this in a descriptive study to begin with. This was a study that we conducted on US and UK populations. I'm just showing the UK results here um, because they were remarkably similar. And what we were looking at was how acceptable people would find it um, for um, uh, these interventions to reduce consumption of sugary drinks. And um, as you can see, what I've just said, that people find educational information very acceptable. So it's a proportion of respondents finding it acceptable. And people finding taxation, uh, a minority finding taxation acceptable. With changing location or shape or size, somewhere in the middle. But what I want to focus on were what we found were predictors of acceptability in this and other studies. We found that people's <coughs> perception of how effective these interventions were was a very strong predictor of how acceptable they found it to be. We also found that people who clearly been to my lecture uh, before uh, say that those who perceived environments as having a strong influence on behavior, again, were more in favor of some of these uh, interventions. And perceived fairness is also a very, a very strong uh, driver of acceptability. So we've now started to do some work on whether or not if we present people with evidence, does that shift their view? Does evidence of effectiveness change minds? Now, this is something that um, has had um, a large airing uh, in, in, in recent uh, months. And there seems to be a general view that we are resistant to evidence, uh, any kind of evidence, um, and uh, where people try to explain uh, the uh, American uh, election and the referendum results, this is something that often crops up. And a couple of uh, popular um, well, uh, books written by scientists um, for the general public have focused on this and suggest that um, the confirmation bias, uh, one of the heuristics we use to navigate the world, um, is one of the variables that means that we seek out evidence or views that support our own and we uh, disregard uh, evidence that doesn't support our views. Um, I have to say that uh, from my skim reading of these books, I think both these authors are prey to the confirmation bias because I think they've been seeking out evidence that uh, uh, confirms the confirmation bias. So, um, as, uh, as a scientist who thinks that, uh, who, who, believe, who, who waits most strongly uh, evidence from systematic reviews, we've just completed a systematic review where we've looked at what does the evidence tell us from experiments when people are provided with evidence of effectiveness of different policies? Does it shift their views. And um, again, forgive me for this uh, illegible slide. Uh, let me talk you through it. Um, so what, uh, what this is showing, again, this is a line of no effect. And what we do is we search the literature for any experiments that are provided people with evidence related to any policy whatsoever. Now, most of the experiments had focused on health, some on the environment, and some on others, like gun control. 
And the line of no effect, say what you're seeing on this side would be when the experimental group that's given evidence of effectiveness is uh, shifting, or has got a more positive view about the policy than the group that was the control group. Okay. So we found 36 experiments and we pooled the results. And what we found was that when people were either told or shown evidence of the effectiveness of these policies, the support for the policy shifted. So it was greater in the group that had been shown the evidence than not. And the overall effect um, was around 4%. So you can see that down here. So that would mean 48% uh, might have become 52% for instance. Um, so it's not tracking individuals. It's just saying on average across the groups there seems to be a shift. But uh, these are experimental studies and there are no competing messages as there are in the real world. We also found nine studies which gave people evidence that a policy was ineffective. And we were interested to know, can people shift the other way? And although um, the, uh, there's more uncertainty around this, nonetheless, it looks like the same size of effect. So when given evidence that a policy is ineffective, um, then uh, on average, support for that will go down by about the same amount as it goes up when you show them evidence of effectiveness. But uh, again, these are experiments in labs, and there are no competing messages as we have in the real world. And in the real world, there are players who will be less interested, coming back to, to health, in us reducing consumption, particularly of products that are uh, harming our health. Now, I haven't, uh, we haven't conducted a systematic review of this, but what seems, our impression is, that industry is using uh, the same factors or targeting the same variables that we were finding um, in predicting acceptability in our studies. So I'm uh, just going to give you a couple of examples of industry responses to regulation that would reduce consumption. So this is in New York in 2014 when um, Mayor Bloomberg was attempting to cap the size at which a sugary drink was sold. And he wanted to cap the size at 16 ounces. So that didn't mean you couldn't buy 10 bottles of 16 ounces, uh, but no longer would you be buying uh, sugary drinks in 32 or 48 ounce sizes. And uh, this uh, went through the courts and uh, he lost. Um, and this is just one of the ads that was taken out by the soda industry. Don't let bureaucrats tell you what size beverage to buy. Um, in the UK, some of you might have seen, I think this is in 2013, the Wine and Spirit Trade Association, uh, when the government was consulting on minimum unit price in England, uh, took out a campaign um, this, with this slogan, why should responsible drinkers pay more? So very much getting at fairness. Yeah, why should they? Well, there's a, an answer to that. Um, so what you can see is... Uh, uh, evidence that might be uh, put into the public domain by those interested in the health of the population is competing against a very, very busy, strong uh, alternative set 
of messages. These are legal products, and it's an interesting question about what is the role of government in regulating not just campaigns, but marketing that is going in a different direction to that which would uh, benefit the health of the people. So, um, just to wrap up now, um, I've suggested just two variables that might be shaping why governments aren't doing more to change our environments to help us change our behaviour. Uh, the first being that actually the public aren't calling out for this. Uh, if, if anything, the public are, um, uh, are, are not uh, particularly in favour of, of government uh, intervention. intervention. Um, and the second uh, set of variables will be an industry that uh, is uh, rowing against uh, change um, in, in this space. So I want to leave you with the idea that maybe um, if the public and indeed policymakers uh, had a different way of making sense of our unhealthy behaviour, that this might... Uh, prompt some change. So the extent to which uh, people are able to understand uh, why risk information doesn't change our behaviour, that's not a reason not to give uh, people the information, but just don't expect it to change behaviour. So if people could understand that why that's the case, then perhaps if they understood more about the fact that it's our environments that are cueing our behaviour, that that might ultimately change our behaviour if it led people to support policies to change the cues in our environments. <coughs> I've talked about a lot of studies that have been conducted by a lot of people. Say, I engage in what's called team science, and these are just some of the research team and collaborators that we have. And uh, none of this would be possible without the funding that we've received over the years from the Department of Health and Social Care, the Medical Research Council, and the Wellcome Trust. And the first two, um, Department of Health and Social Care and Medical Research Council, um, I thank you as uh, taxpayers for allowing us to carry on with this work. So thanks very much. So we have a few minutes um, for questions. So I'm going to stand back so that I can see and not be biased with hands that are just in front of me. And if we've got microphones, yeah, so we've got two microphones. We've got one hand here. Uh, and is there a hand there? So can we take those two questions first? Um. The 95% about uh, inactivity is very interesting. Um, I'd be curious about your opinion or if you've heard something about this. So like now we have like on our phones or our apps or uh, watches that like little reminders that says if you haven't, if you've been sedentary for this number of time, uh, you know, get up and move around a little bit. Like are these sort of behavioral nudges effective? Do you think they'll work? And uh, full disclosure, I have such a watch and I have turned off those notifications because they're distracting, but I felt bad doing it. Okay, good. Um, 
Okay, um, so full disclosure, I used to have a Fitbit and I don't anymore. Um, the few trials that are being conducted, um, so people who buy them may well uh, change their behavior, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if uh, the great unwashed have these, does it make a difference? And the few trials that have been conducted so far show no, it doesn't seem to be having an effect. And there's one trial um, that showed that uh, wearing one of these devices increased the energy that people consumed. So one has to watch out. First of all, uh, are these effective? And secondly, might they be doing some harm? So at the moment, uh, enjoy your device. Yeah. <laughs> So there was a question here. Um, it struck me when you said how ineffective government um, health uh, information campaigns are that it might actually be counterproductive um, because it lets governments think they're doing something and of course governments want to feel they're doing something, people pressure governments to doing something and if, and if they didn't do that they, they would then maybe be more focused on actually effective means of influencing behaviour. Yes. Um, that is that is um, that is the case. Uh, I, I think that uh, one of the concerns would be that government would uh, put in place uh, policies that are actually not going to shift, make make the difference. And that has been a critique of the government's uh, child obesity plan, uh, which did involve quite a lot of information-based interventions. On the, um, so I'm, I'm not disagreeing, and that is, that is a valid critique. I would say um, that with some of the campaigns, I think that they, are, they can be effective in raising awareness. And um, paradoxically, although it's not going to change behavior, if people are aware that these behaviors are undermining health a lot, then it arguably can make them more receptive to uh, stronger messages about the need for government to change environments um, in order to change our behaviour. So some, some have argued that that, that, could be, that could be an effect as well. So pluses and minuses. Other, other questions? So there's one over here and there's one up there. Could you talk a little bit more about the changing of defaults? So, for, for example, I know in one of my local schools, um, children are now no longer allowed to bring fruit juice in as part of their packed lunch. It's um, water or nothing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about defaults? Um, well, that's, that's one example. Um, and I, I, I'm sure all of us can think of the times when we go into any kind of uh, cafe or, or, or coffee shop or fast food restaurant where um, one is presented with something that, well, um, wine I think is a really good example. The number of times that I've spoilt uh, dinner with friends when I've had to say uh, to, to uh, the waiter, I'd like a small glass of wine, um, one, two, five. They say, well, I'm sorry, we don't do that. Say well, I think you're fine, but as part of your licensing regulation, <laughs> that this is what uh, what you have to do. No, I know. Well, we, we don't have a measure, and so on. So, uh, so that's an example of um, changing the default, say that people would would serve 
uh, something that, that, that might be smaller. Um, you might have seen that Public Health England's uh, report that was a follow-up on the Childhood Obesity Plan is now talking about um, trying to encourage uh, manufacturers to make smaller serving sizes um, so that those would become more of a default. So those are just some of the examples um, that were happening. So there's a, a question right at the back here. Regarding your study um, from 1700s up, up to, to date on, on alcohol, size of, al of glasses, it's something that's often I've, I've thought about too, but um, I think that's just one single thing that you've considered. I mean, the size of people, the income of people, what people do in their spare time, there's so many other factors. And I, I'd like to see a multivariate study that, that really pulls it all together and says, there. To my mind, that's just a, such a one single factor. I don't think it's enough to really, um, really give evidence that, that glass size does contribute to a lot more drinking by the public. Um, okay, so just to disentangle that a bit, um, I wouldn't disagree that uh, what I'm talking about is this is not going to crack anything. Uh, um, the, the, the problem that, that we face, as I showed at the very beginning in terms of our behaviour, is huge and we need change uh, in all those uh, environments that, that, that I talked about. Uh, we need system science approaches. Um, where I, uh, and so what, what I've talked about is one contribution, it's one piece of a huge puzzle. And I, I, I hope I haven't overclaimed on that. Um, what you're saying is uh, it's not worth it, it's not going to make a difference. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I, I think, I, think I, I wouldn't disagree with you, um, but it's an interesting question about uh, why the amount of wine, for instance, that, that we're consuming, which has increased fourfold over, over a period of 20 years, how, how, how to explain that. And of course, there are many variables in there in terms of the price of wine and uh, a number of other things. But actually, you know, this extraordinary increase in size of wine glass. So it's only going to be one variable, but um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's worth going for. Uh, we know that uh, the, um, the industry has been doing quite a bit of work on wine and beer glasses. And I can tell you that, although it's not in the public domain, um, it's going in the direction of increasing their profits and undermining our health. But I agree, you know, that more, more is needed of, of a whole variety of other things. Okay, um, we've got uh, three, uh, oh, I can see four hands. So um, is that right? Can you, if, if you really want to ask questions, last round of questions. So one, two, three, four. So let's take those two and then these two and I'll be quick because it's time for drinks. <laughs> Um, you didn't mention 
sorry, can you hear me? Um, you didn't mention things like fast food because in McDonald's culture, of course, there aren't any plates, there isn't any tableware. There's a piece of paper on a tray and a, maybe a cardboard box or a piece of greaseproof paper. And also the social habits of the, in the modern world. Families don't tend to sit down to eat together the way they might still do in Italy for their dinner every day and the habits of grazing where there's no actual tableware involved. So perhaps you could comment about that. I, I, all I can say is I completely agree. Uh, and I've just been looking at one set of, of variables um, that, that are shaping our behavior. And as I said at, at the beginning, um, there's the, the uh, cultural environment, our social environment, and all of these will be playing into this. Thank you very much for this talk. Um, I was wondering, uh, apart from government uh, with spreading information, how do social media and platforms like those help in changing behavior and public uh, perception of risks? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, we, um, I, I, I genuinely don't know how, uh, how we would use that to our advantage. Um, certainly the digital environments are very important and Often people have looked at it, and we've done a bit of work looking at this in terms of children's exposure to marketing, advert games, and, and those kinds of, of variables. So it's just another environment in which those, those cues are present, but I'm sure that there's much more to it than, than that. So I think that's a whole other area for work. Two other questions. There was one here, and then there was... Uh, you've, you've got the microphone, and then... This person for the last question, yeah. So thank you for your talk. Um, you talked about fairness, and also on the one side, there's sort of human bloody-mindedness of not wanting to change, and that being a human choice, that they want their large sizes and they want their big, pack crisp sizes. But also you've then got a commercial world that also has a profit motive, and those two things, I think, make your job very difficult, and I was wondering what your thoughts on it are. Um, it does make it very difficult. I think that uh, this has to be something that's, that I think is discussed far more. Um, we know that people are averse to loss. Um, so um, 50 years ago, I don't think people dreamed of having huge bags of crisps, uh, and suddenly they're there, and people don't want them to go away. Um, uh, so I think we need to think much more carefully about needs, wants, and what happens when you change environments. To what extent do, you, do people um, find this difficult? So we've just completed some pilot uh, uh, interventions in 18 work sites where we've been uh, changing the food that's available the, size, the portion sizes that are available and, and looking at labelling. And for portion size, that, that, that was the intervention that we struggled with most, that in many of these worksite cafeterias, people were saying, oh my God, no, there'll be a riot. Uh, the workers won't, won't take it. Um, so nonetheless, we went in and the portion size of the, of the, uh, of the hot meals was reduced by around 10%. And there was a proportionate decrease in price, okay? So I think that's, that's absolutely key here. And 
people didn't really notice. I, some people did. They were very pleased about it. So I think there's a way in which if price shifts with, with some of this, then I think there would be less resistance. We also know that people are really concerned about obesity in children. Not their own children, necessarily. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> oh, uh, well, that, that, that is the case. But um, the, the children in our population, this is something that, that really concerns people. So I think, again, that that is... Uh, so I see that there's a young person that you're talking to there. Um, that uh, this, this, again, is something that I think that uh, we shouldn't be resistant to having a go. So one final question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how is it that the change in smoking behavior was so successful and not so successful in the other risk areas that you described? Yeah, good question. Um, so there have never been so many smokers alive as there are now. Okay, so because there are more people on the planet and the tobacco industry has gone from the high to the middle and lower-income countries. So that's the first thing. Um, secondly, uh, there has been a shift. Some people would say it's taken a very long time um, from when the, the first reports came out. It was in 1963, linking smoking with, with lung cancer. So it took many years of determined effort. Um, the, the main thing, so, so we're only just beginning to notice uh, or, or talk about the other behaviors. So it, we're earlier on. In, in, in that uh, epidemic, if you like. Um, so it did take some while. Price was incredibly important in shifting behavior. And it seems that once you get to a critical point where now it's a minority activity to smoke cigarettes in our culture, so the majority of the population are very happy for government to regulate in the area of tobacco because it's not my behavior that you're regulating. So you need to shift. Uh, to get it to that point. The other difference with tobacco is, unlike food, um, I'll leave out alcohol, um, you, 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 can, you can live without it. So it's, it's been, it, some people feel, feel that it's been easier to regulate. But it, it provides a very interesting model that uh, where there are, there are differences and similarities with some of the other behaviors. Okay, so thank you all very much and enjoy the rest of your evening.